0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bradley Morgan, and I am joined today by my guest, Bill Perine. Bill is the director of the documentaries, Children of the Stars, It's Gonna Blow, San Diego's Music Underground, 1986-1996, to 1996. and why are we doing this in front of people? He's here today to talk about his new book, Alien Territory, Radical, Experimental, and Irrelevant Music in 1970s San Diego, and is published by Termite House. Bill, thanks for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So to get things started, uh, can you share with us what your book is about?
1: Well, uh, it's, it's, it's about what the title suggests. Um, it's essentially about a loose band of people who were in San Diego during the 1970s making music that was really very much on the edge of what could be considered music. That's really what the book focuses on, on things that challenge the very idea of what music could be and how those efforts to make music in that way coincided and were informed by a lot of the cultural revolutions that were going on in in America and in the world in the early in, in the seventies, and especially in Southern California, there was a, there were a lot of you know, new age movements and, you know, flirtations with Eastern philosophy and, uh, the opening up of, uh, you know, lesbian and gay, uh, rights and feminism and all these things. Um, so most of it ends up being about the people who were involved with the early music department at UCSD, the university of California, San Diego. But then I also stray off into some of the more independent people who were doing things kind of kind of kind of on their own out there, Uh, even though the UCSD people were in a way it was it was an anti-academic music department in the beginning. So I'm kind of charting the evolution or devolution, depending on how you look at it, of of that idea. And hopefully it all comes together in one shiny, shiny package with a bow on top.
0: So you do profile a lot of different artists and musicians and the different scenes that they occupy throughout your book. But I want to open up with by discussing the environment that they occupy because it plays a really significant role um, for the development of that scene. So could you set the scene for us? What was living in San Diego like during the early to mid 1960s?
1: Well, in the, in the 60s, San Diego was pretty much a sleepy sleepy beach town slash sleepy military town had a big military presence but it was also full of you know uh surfers and other you know people of looking for leisure basically it was very laid back and despite being a really huge place it was pretty relatively sparsely populated for the size and because of kind of like la which is full of canyons and uh, other natural things that keep people apart. San Diego was the same way. So it was really more a collection of small towns. Um, it was also near the border, you know, we're right up, you know, depending on where you live in San Diego, you're just a few minutes from the border from with Mexico, which also plays into it. Uh, so it was sort of a, uh, it was a, a a nowheresville, arts wise, you know, there was art happening, certainly some really great art, but it was tended to be of the local variety. It didn't much get out of here. And the population overall was relatively conservative, I think. So when these people that I write about start coming in, it's a big, uh, it's a big change.
0: So you talk about one of those towns, one of those waspy conservative towns being, um, Lajala or Lahala. And, you write about how it had these pockets of rebellion. You mentioned that there was like music centers and art galleries. Could you kind of talk about those little pockets of rebellion that existed in these conservative towns?
1: Yeah. Um, well, La, La Jolla was, was, and, and is one of the swankier areas in San Diego. And it, it kind of almost considers itself to be its own town, even though it really is part of San Diego. Uh, it's, it's beautiful and it's full of, uh, beautiful people (laughs) always always kind of has been and it's tended to it's less so now but it's tended to be somewhat conservative and um but at the time there was a museum there Uh, i'm gonna forget the exact name of it nowadays it's it's the san diego museum of contemporary art but back in the day it was the uh La Jolla Art Center, and it had another name as well. I think La Jolla Center of the Arts or something like that, but let's just call it La Jolla Art Center. La Jolla Art Center was a really great kind of forward-looking institution that managed to bring in a group of really interesting painters from around San Diego, like Malcolm McLean and Sheldon Kirby and uh, Richard Allen Morris and John Baldessari, who was later a, a very well-known kind of conceptual artist, was around there. And they they were all involved with it, and they were not particularly welcomed by La Jolla in, in general. And so the museum sort of functioned as a, a weird little fortress for avant-garde culture in San Diego. But they were doing remarkable things, things that were very much the equal of the visual art scenes that were happening in New York and San Francisco and stuff like that at the time. And there were, you know, little flickerings of music around that scene too. Uh, you know, some, you know, they would play more modern composers, but you're looking, you know, their idea of modernism was more along the lines of Stravinsky or something like that, which was even at the time kind of considered pretty far out for La Jolla. But uh, you know, La Jolla in general just regarded them as a bunch of weird beat- beatniks and they were very uncomfortable with, having them around. Uh, and so it just was this very kind of self-contained little scene in the best and the mostly in the best way possible, but also I I suppose, you know, when you have a self-contained scene, the downside is that no one, no one knows what you're doing. (laughs) You know, you're just really kind of uh, playing for a small audience of your, of your friends.
0: Yeah. And that's an incredibly, um, you know, important thing where you have know, to kind of like set that scene. And it's, it's, I get very fascinated about the how these kind of formulate out of these seemingly like cultural societal wastelands. And, and what's kind of fascinating about it is not, not only is this area just culturally like that, but it is environmentally like that. And the university, uh, the UCSD, that is the epicenter of the this creative music explosion in your book. In the mid-60s, it just existed in the middle of nowhere. And I was wondering to you could just talk about what life on campus was like before the founding of this new music school that would change it entirely.
1: Well, honestly, it sounds idyllic. Everybody I've talked to who was attending that university back in the late 60s and early 70s, it just sounded like a little bit of paradise. Because uh, it's, it's right up on the bluffs over the Pacific Ocean. Uh, it's a former marine base. And so oddly enough, a lot of the buildings were former, uh, what do they call them? Quonset huts, things like that. So you had this kind of young generation of people occupying a a former military outpost. Um, but it was, it was very laid back. It was very science focused. It was a science focused university in the beginning, um, but it was very, because it was a young university and it was one that was established in a sort of, um, I don't know how you'd put it. it wasn't exactly established experimentally, but it, it was established. I suppose you could say it was, it was established in opposition to the, the East Coast universities. It was considered a more equal playing field for people. There were less hierarchies between teachers and students. It was all supposed to be very hands-on and together, um, and so it really, I think it was a little, a little bit of paradise, but the arts were a relatively small part of it in the beginning. It took a while for the arts program to even get going. And because it was a science focused university, uh, again, for better and for worse, they, they tended to approach music as, uh, almost as an outgrowth of science. And the, the, the positive of that is that they were really into the idea. The scientists understood the idea that musicians needed they needed their stuff they needed things to work with they needed to work with their hands they were working with instruments and so they needed and they needed to research you know these research different approaches to music so they understood that on the other hand they they weren't necessarily some of them weren't necessarily interested in anything beyond just some bach to listen to you know when they got off you know doing their research at the end of the day and so there's that definite kind of push-pull that was going on throughout the early years
0: of, of UCSD. So let's talk about the, those early days, this new music school. Who were the founders, and what was their vision for this school, and how do those early days kind of come together to fulfill that vision?
1: Well, um, I guess you, you mean more, more specifically the music department, or do you mean the school in general? I'm definitely better qualified to talk about the music department.
0: Oh, the music department. Yeah, the founders who kind of like envisioned what that program was going to look like at the school.
1: Yeah, so I mean, it it basically, uh, probably the main, a a bunch of people were involved with it, but the really the main names were Will Ogden and uh, Robert Erickson, who both to one degree or another came out of, they had long histories, but they kind of came out of the Bay Area music scene, which was, a fantastic one in the, in the sixties, uh, up in, up in the East Bay and in San Francisco proper. Uh, and so they, they both had in their long, in their long lead up to, to starting the UCSD music department, they'd really had enough of, of academia. They were very rebellious and they were very tired of the constraints that were put on musicians in the world of academia. And they were very, They had a real mission to kind of destroy academia, I think. In fact, their original idea is they they wanted no no grades, no classes. It was just supposed to be sort of a free-form kind of... uh, I'm not sure what they intended because it didn't didn't get past the university people who were providing the money, but originally they, you know, if they could have had their way, it wouldn't have been really a school at all. It would have been a workshop, I think. And you got a degree at the end of your workshop. That's the way I interpret it. Um, but so, yeah, they, they really just were, that's, what's fascinating about it. It was a music department at at an academic institution that was founded in opposition to academia, uh, And they managed to keep a lot of that spirit in the early days. But inevitably, as the city grew and as the university grew around it, that kind of had to change. But there's a composer I interviewed in the book, uh, Alexina Louis, Canadian composer. She's up in Canada now. But she remembers coming for her first classes at UCSD around 1970 and just her shock because they were doing... You know, all the students and all the teachers basically went in a room together and started doing exercises where they were lying on the floor and, and making animal sounds and, uh, you know, doing breath exercises and all these things. And everybody would go and, you know, have a drink afterwards. And half the student body was smoking pot in the, you know, outside of the outside of the hall and all that kind of stuff. And so that was the atmosphere that they were they were fomenting at the time. It was very much. Uh, a non-scholastic atmosphere.
0: <laughs> yeah, the the kind of conflicts between the radicalists and the music school and the rest of the university, I mean, that's something you see in a lot of academia, These this interdepartmental, interuniversity university kind of squabbling. But in your book, you kind of explore how this conflict um, extended into the larger San Diego music culture as well. And I was wondering if you, if you can give an example of that.
1: Well, you know, the... Uh, uh, those those tensions that that were in the, in the university definitely were just it was just a microcosm of of San Diego except it was it was worse in San Diego really I guess I guess the main point I would I would want to make is that the university for all its uh, for all its conflicts between the people involved there between you know the avant garde and the experimental and maybe the more traditional elements it was still a much more congenial place than the rest of San Diego, which really had no interest in this kind of music, hardly at all. There was just no sort of infrastructure for this stuff and no, uh, no knowledge of it. You know, there, you know, in in a place like San Francisco or New York, you could conceivably go down to your local art space and see some really weird music or art happening well away from academia. And in San Diego at the time, at least until the late seventies, that just wasn't, that just wasn't a thing you know even uh you know like i said even stravinsky was considered pretty out there by most san diegans i would say in the in the 70s um and so you know the, the, there were attempts by a lot of the the ucsd people and the people involved with harry parch to to do this kind of music out in the wild a bit and those attempts were usually a little bit awkward and and that was sort of the point. Like there were, there were a few guys, Warren Burt, David Dunn and uh, Ron Raboy, who had a couple little groups that they, they did. One was called fatty acid. Fatty acid is actually a good thing to talk about because the name both, it sounds both like sort of a science, Something's vaguely scientific, a fatty acid. and it also sounds of course like an acid rock band. And so they would get booked at, at weird shows around San Diego by people who were expecting you know the Jimi Hendrix experience or something like that, something in that vein. But fatty acid basically was three skilled musicians playing instruments they didn't know how to play. and then they would play kind of hoary old classical, uh, popular classics things we wouldn't even remember today like the corniest of corny classical music german work songs and stuff like that too and they would play them badly and they would just maul them and they would ad- attempt to do it earnestly but of course it was comedic the more earnest they were in trying to play play these things and so there was one show that they played and, and it just you know it cleared the room within five minutes and they also had a side project where they were doing more "quote unquote" serious electronic music. They did a thing at a local food co-op, which was probably the best place to do something like that in San Diego at the time, because it was at least at least it was full of weird hippie types, and you know they installed uh, kind of pre-recorded tapes in the cheese aisle and stuff like that, and they left up a little sheet for people to leave their feet, their feedback about the experience. And mostly it was just along the lines of, you know, what the hell is this stuff? (laughs) You know, what were these weird sounds? I was trying to shop for cheese. Maybe that's what I should have called the book. I I was trying to shop for cheese and all I got was weird sounds. Um, So yeah, there just wasn't, there wasn't really any sort of, for the UCSD people, at least in the early seventies, you were pretty well, with some minor exceptions, you were locked into your little UCSD world. And even when you played outside of UCSD, it was usually with those people in some sort of safe space that had been created for you, some local art cinema or something like that. And you're basically playing to UCSD people, or that's my perception of it anyway.
0: That's really interesting because I was very interested in understanding this dynamic within the school's music culture because of something you say in your book, which, um, quote, the future of experimental music in San Diego owes a huge cosmic debt to the geographic isolation and low status associated with the upstart university. And I think that's such a really fantastic point. And so my question is, how did the music scene of UC San Diego during the mid-60s differ from music scenes elsewhere that had more of that social reverence and didn't have that kind of geographical and cultural isolation?
1: Well, you know, a p- part of it, I mean specifically, I think what I was referring to in that passage was the fact that they couldn't hire a lot of the more high profile people from the East Coast. They wouldn't come out here. They didn't want to come to San Diego because they saw it as being a step down in their career and they also saw it, I think, as being geographically isolating. They would be down there you know at the at the cul-de-sac of the u s as they saw it. Um, and so they had to hire people like will Ogden and Robert Erickson and Kenneth Gaburo and Pauline Oliveros, these people who really looked at things very differently. Um, But uh, in general, because of those faculty hires, I think, and because of the, the, the culture of Southern California, even in relatively conservative San Diego, it lended itself to a much more egalitarian environment. And that's something that I I hardly even thought about it. I became so used to it, I guess. But since completing the book, I've thought about it a lot more, which is that, you know, the, the faculty and the students really operated for for the most part with very little between them, they would get together and rehearse things and take ideas from one another. And then those things would be created together. Whereas I get the feeling, especially at the time, uh, often, I think the faculty would basically take ideas from their students and incorporate them into their own work. And you wouldn't hear much about the students necessarily. Um, So it was a much, it was just a much more communal environment and it was a much more, uh, it was certainly less steeped in history. So people weren't particularly concerned with the classics in San Diego at the time. I don't, there were no classes in, uh, I shouldn't say there were no classes, but they weren't emphasizing the history of classical music, for instance. I think it was generally considered that the history was well documented, and it was their role to do something new with it. And so it was very hands-on, and it was very collective, and uh, much of it is just attitudinal. I think I, I don't know that I don't know that you would have quite anything like Pauline Oliveros's classes anywhere else or certainly not anywhere other than the west coast at that time where they really were almost like encounter groups or deep listening exercises where they'd listen to one tone being minutely adjusted for an hour or that rather they would have to do that themselves they weren't doing they weren't just doing lectures uh and so it was a very different musical environment and it was a very, it was a very different place. You know, that was the edge of American consciousness at that time, the West coast. That's where these things were really, that's where these things were happening.
0: So let's take a deeper look into that community and talk about some of the musicians you profile in your book. You've mentioned a few already. um, One of which was Harry Parch, who you in fact opened your book with. Can you kind of give us a bit about his background and what he was kind of doing in this scene uh, at this time,
1: well, Harch or Parch, excuse me, is tremendously important. He's really as important, if not more important, than UCSD's people in this whole story. Because Parch, you know, Parch is most famous that people call him the Hobo Composer, which is a bit uh, more than a bit reductive, but it's it's also true. He he was a a, a man who who was completely and totally averse to any sort of dogma. He was opposed to academia in all its forms. And, uh, he was an iconoclast and as an iconoclast, he kind of, he was a perfect fit in a lot of ways for what was happening in the the late sixties and in the seventies, because people were looking for something, students, younger people were looking for something different and Parch represented that. And for a lot of people, Parch was just this life changing figure, uh, but, you know, a part of his background for anybody who who, who doesn't know is he, he invented his own instruments, these phenomenally beautiful handmade instruments that played uh, that he played his own music on and he, he created his own scales. He was deeply interested in microtonality. Uh, you know, I forget the the exact scales he had, but you know, he would do 37 note scales, 54 note scales, 19 note scales, all these, you know, all these things. And he needed specific instruments. He needed his own instruments to create that music. So he created, he literally created his own musical world. And because he did that and he did it using the American vernacular, he was very interested in American rhythms and in the way Americans spoke. he was interested in American history. He was interested in what he learned during his time as a hobo. Um, and so uh, by the time he he got to San Diego, in, in a lot of ways, he was a very tired man. He was an older man at that point. I forget how old he was. He was probably in his late 60s, I'm going to say. And he'd spent a lifetime ha- hauling these huge instruments around the country and kind of searching for grant money and searching for patrons having brief stints at the University of Illinois and and things like that, but basically avoiding any kind of real job or any sort of real academic commitments. And by the time he got out here, he was just kind of tired and broke and a little bit desperate. And he was looking for UCSD to hire him. And UCSD was one of the few institutions in the world that would have considered hiring Harry Parch at that point. And they did briefly. Uh, he served, I think, one semester, or one quarter, I forget, where he did some kind of drunken shambling lectures that, from an academic standpoint, were probably disastrous. But from a uh, a personal standpoint, for a lot of these people, were hugely influential just to be in a room with Harry Parch and to sense his passion and his disdain for the institutions that governed music at that time, whatever they may not have learned in terms of actual concrete music theory or anything like that. Uh, I think just looking at Harry Parch and and seeing how his life how his pursuit of music had really been all-encompassing and totally idealistic. there David Dunn, who was one of his acolytes and who, who who later was involved, he wasn't a student, but he was involved with UCSD quite a bit and he was involved with San Diego State University and he later became uh, a fairly well-known, artist and composer. David Dunn said something to the effect of, of seeing Parch as a, as a real life lesson about the, the, the virtues and perils of doing things on your own and of being self-taught and of being self-reliant. On the one hand, he created these magnificent works, works of art that really are like nothing else. And on the other, he was a tired old man who unfortunately had a tendency to bite the, the hand that fed him. Including UCSDs, uh, so he didn't last at UCSD, but his his influence I think is probably it's he's been hugely influential, I think, on American experimental music in one way or another, but he's particularly influential on the world around San Diego. Pretty much everyone who was around San Diego in one way or another in this world took influence from Parch and in some cases, you know even after Parch died, and I believe it was 73 that he died. Uh, his ensemble continued on and all those musicians just beyond playing his works and working on other projects they're still around and still still doing things so it's a, another just hugely influential strand of influence that that I get into in the book
0: i know one of the problems he had I was trying to find a permanent home for his instruments that you mentioned that he just lugged around all over the world could you describe those instruments for us and just like what they looked like and what sound like?
1: Well, they look like these bizarre kind of, they're half, you know, there's a, there's a film that was done in the late seventies, a documentary called uh, the dreamer that remains. I'm sorry. In the, in the early seventies, around 72. And there's, they, they shot some of it on this soundstage, this all white soundstage. And so you see these beautiful, strange instruments against white. It kind of looks like that George Lucas film. What is it? THX uh, 1180 or whatever it's called. It's very futuristic, but they also kind of look like, I don't know, they look like uh Man Ray or Jean Arp sculptures or something like that. Uh, but there was a huge, they were often made w- with gourds and they were made of wood and they were made of tin cans. I think maybe even bottles and things like that. They were really just, you know, barely patched together in a lot of ways. And they were very precisely tuned because they had to be microtunel instruments. Yeah. I want to mention just, it's so difficult to describe these instruments. I would encourage anybody who hasn't seen them to just look up uh, the Harry Parch instruments because they're, Remarkably beautiful, and their names are, are very beautiful and, and descriptive. There's the Chromalodian, the Harmonic Canon, the Cloud Chamber Bowls. Uh, there were varieties of he called them boos. There were Diamond Marimbas, Kataras, the Quadrilangurus Reversum, and most of these were tuned to you know a fr- forty three note scale is basically what he eventually uh, settled into. But so they're they're partially. They're partially they're 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 instruments, but they're also sculptures. But they're also a, a huge part of Parch's music was this idea of corporeality. He really wanted people to embrace the body in music and not just to rely on the head. He felt that Western music had become too too attached to the cerebral elements of music. And even though his music could be very cerebral, the instruments were designed to encourage people to really, you could really bash away on those instruments, which is why a lot of kind of rock players would gravitate towards them and younger people too. It was an immensely, they were immensely physical instruments that you really kind of had to manhandle and you really had to lean into and engage with. And of course they required constant work. The bowls and the glass things were always breaking things were going out of tune. So the whole thing was, it was the least practical way to make, make music imaginable, especially in you know today's computer world where you can just put everything on a laptop. You were constantly engaging with your instrument with these things. and so to see somebody play them is a, a remarkable experience that unfortunately is missing in most most of when you hear Harry Parch's music, you don't get to see people play it, which is a real shame.
0: So let's fast forward a few years to you know the early 70s, and at this time we have the Vietnam War still raging, and San Diego has a very strong military presence, but despite that, you see San Diego has a very active war movement, anti-war movement. And another um, artist that you profile throughout the book, Pauline o- o- Oliveros, you write about her music that the mechanisms of Western music through which Oliveros communicated seemed inadequate to the task of responding to such trauma— and I wanted to get a sense of her background and how her music was able to kind of capture this energy that was happening on campus at the time.
1: Well, Oliveros was – man, she was a remarkable person, first of all. It's hard to sum up somebody like Pauline Oliveros. She, she was somebody who, while writing this book, I, I just – you know, I'd already ad- admired her, but she was just a remarkable person. Everything you hear about her, she seems like just the most open-minded, kind, thoughtful person imaginable. But Oliveros basically came from, as I recall, I think she was from Texas originally. I, I believe I have that right. And she she gravitated she gravitated west toward where she ended up studying under Robert Erickson uh, for a while. And they worked together in San Francisco and they worked together at the tape center, which, uh, Oliveros was one of the founding members of the tape center. And so she was somebody who essentially came from a non-academic background, you know, even, even her schooling with Erickson, she never really, she never got any higher degrees. And I don't think she approached things particularly academic, academically. Um, but she really had this more kind of intuitive approach in the beginning where she was working with these early forms of tape music in the Bay area. And she was closely aligned with people like Terry Riley and Morton Subotnick and, and Erickson and, uh, and the other people around the Bay area. And so, you know, like all that music, it was relatively primitive. I mean, she would record things in her bathroom using, using the natural echo in her bathtub and, there was a lot of just experimenting to see, see what would happen. Uh, but gra- eventually when once Erickson established the music department in San Diego, he put out the call and said to Oliver, do you want to come down here and work? And she, she took it up, b- took him up because it was a good gig. Frankly, it was a chance to get a good paycheck and to do something different and to have control over or some control over a department whereas she'd really been kind of, I think, eking out a living, up in the bay area, bay area. Um but once she got down here, you know, she'd spent she she immediately felt out of place because she didn't have an academic background, and even though it wasn't a particularly academic department, she nonetheless felt a little bit underqualified or impo- have a little bit of imposter syndrome, I guess. She was also a, a lesbian and she was an out lesbian in a predominant in a relatively conservative environment, San Diego and on a, in a faculty that was largely heterosexual, unlike the Bay area where things were much more open. Uh, and she wrote that, you know, she, she felt very accepted by the people around her and Erickson was the least, uh, was the least sort of, uh, judgmental or domineering colleague imaginable that whatever worry she had about working for somebody that she, uh, you know, uh, was formerly a student of or working with somebody she was formerly a student of those went out the window because Erickson was so collegial and, and open to, to collaboration. But nonetheless, she just always had this little bit of doubt, I think. And her work as, as, uh, as she went on, she became increasingly disengaged with the idea of, of Western music, the ideas of, working from notes and scales and harmony and all this kind of stuff. And you hear it in her last tape pieces uh, that she did in San Diego, which are just uh, assaults. They're just some of the most harsh music I think you'll ever hear. They sound like Japanese noise music that, you know, came out in the eighties. They're just intense. And you, you, you sense that not only is she wondering where she's going to go with this particular thread of her work, but she's wondering, She's using it to maybe to work out some some of her own discontents at that time, and uh, there was a horrifying incident on the UC San Diego campus where uh, an anti-war protester doused himself in kerosene and lit himself on fire and died. I don't know, not not very far away at all from where Oliveros was working. There were there were protests verging on riots on the campus, and all this I think converged to 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 make Oliveros go back to square one and reevaluate what music could could mean and she, and her her solution was to go back to her accordion which she played as a child and she thought that the world needed healing which nowadays when we hear stuff like that it it maybe gets a little close to new age hippy dippy sentiment but at the time bringing that into music was a pretty radical idea. And so she went back to her accordion and she started playing just single long notes and harmonizing with them. And she basically rebuilt her music really over the next 12 years that she was in San Diego. She rebuilt her music from these very basic ideas of just listening to sound and trying to apply it in such a way that it would have healing effects on the human psyche and this was a very radical idea at the time. Even amongst her, her colleagues at UCSD, this was really uh, a total rethinking of what music could be. And she took that outside of the university. She was heavily involved with feminist causes, with the gay and lesbian movement, with political things. She started uh, doing things like she had a, a series of, uh, what were they called, cheap commissions, where for $1 you could write in and have Pauline Oliveros write write a composition for you. And they ended up being very conceptual, a little like Cohen's, almost little things, just a prompt activity. But she started to see music as being, I think, not just a matter of arranging notes and not just a matter of musicians working in these cloistered environments. She started to see music as being part of a bigger process. And, uh, yeah, in a lot of ways, that's what got me to write this book, I think was understanding how much oliveros her time in san diego was really when she was figuring this stuff out because there's quite a break from her famous stuff in the early in the 60s where she's doing her tape music to the stuff she was doing in the 80s and 90s and 2000s which were her concepts of deep list deep listening and it's really her time in san diego that is the missing piece of that puzzle that people don't talk about because that's when uh owing to some of the things you were talking about, the anti-war movement and all that, she really reconceptualized her entire approach to music and and to life.
0: This process-oriented approach to music is really fascinating to me because we were talking earlier about how UC San Diego was a largely science-focused school with research labs and everything else that comes with a science school. But that philosophy was carried over to the music school when they developed their own lab called the Center for Music Experiment. And I was wondering if you'd tell us more about that and what the goal was for it, and what could a composer expect to find there um, who was attending the school.
1: Yeah, CME, the Center for Music Experiment, is is a remarkable, (laughs) remarkable, a remarkable story, really, because it. Here's my take on it. I, I know some people won't necessarily agree agree with me on this, but to me, it, it was a bit of, there's an element of subterfuge to the entire thing, which is that they decided, the faculty decided they wanted a research center specifically for new and experimental music. And the idea was to structure it in such a way that, the sciences had structured their research institutes. And so it would be free of, uh, once you're in the Center for Music Experiment, it was, you were free of teaching responsibilities. Your goal as a fellow, which was generally a student or a visitor, or as a faculty member, was to go into the Center for Music Experiment, immerse yourself in some very particular research project and come out at the end of it with... Some results to show, much like a science, uh, m- much like a, a scientific endeavor. Now, to me, that's a bit of subterfuge because I know people. Even though Oliveros and Gaburro and these people had an interest in the sciences, I think there was an element of let's get a place where we can do whatever the hell we want and have the university fund it. And that's in the early days. There's a bit of a bit of that happening, and it's glorious. Because they got a grant from, I think it was the Ford and Rockefeller Foundations. I think the Rockefeller provided the initial grant, if I recall. Um, and they got a bunch of money to set this thing up. And over the next few years, while they had that initial grant money, and it was like $400,000, they were free to do basically anything they wanted. And so it was a real just throw something against the wall and see what sticks. So they'd have symposia where they would bring in you know, everyone from... Uh, I hope I'm gonna get this right. I believe Terry Riley came down on one of those. I think maybe, uh, um, I think Terry Riley came down. But so you'd have so you'd have things where like Terry Riley would come down and give a presentation. But you'd also have Mel Blanc come in, the guy who did the Bugs Bunny cartoons, and he would talk about vocal techniques essentially. And all this would be brought into the different research projects that were going on at CME at the time. There was the Extended Vocal Techniques Ensemble which would have taken stuff from Mel Blanc and incorporated into it into their really radical approach to to, to vocal music. Uh, and then you'd have Oliveros did a research with ESP, essentially, where she was trying to do music by ESP, transmitting, transmitting images from one person to another. And that person, I believe, would make music from the images. These really far out things that normally you wouldn't have university funding for, Uh, you know, Kenneth Gaburo, who we haven't talked about much, practically lived at CME. He had his new music on new music, choral ensembles, which would change every year and increasingly got away from any sort of concept of a choral ensemble. By the end, it was basically a performance art troupe doing mime influenced work involving involving uh falling on mats for 12 12 minutes at a time so it was this remarkable combination of a scientific laboratory and like uh, a free a hippie post hippie free-for-all where you could kind of do anything you wanted and so for those first three or four years just some really wild things happened and uh some not so wild things. People like Will Ogden would go in there and do research on timbre for, you know, six weeks, you know, very things that you could really write a simple report about, or maybe, you know, have a a brief composition that expressed it. But most of the time, the stuff was really not very quantifiable or qualifiable. It was very, uh, it was very free form exploration with, with a nice, a nice check behind it. But, um, Eventually, as, as CME went on and as the university grew, the, the, that had to change. And so as it goes on, you see it becoming more and more focused on very specific musical projects with definite ends and with definite kind of finished compositions or finished performances at the end. But throughout, nonetheless, it was a place where really people could get together and kind of test whatever wild theory or whatever wild thing they wanted to try. And they could do it with very little fear of failing because there was no such thing as, there's no such thing as failing within a context like that. You were really there just to experiment. And because you weren't, you were doing this on your own time away from the the demands of teaching, you could kind of do anything you wanted. And I think that that was particularly central to, for people like Gaburro and Oliveros, uh, and some of their students, I think that was a real godsend to them. I don't know where they would have had the opportunity to do the really wild things they were doing without without that center being there.
0: Yeah, it seems that the purism of the experimentation philosophy of CME really kind of shifted the the dynamic of the of the department within the school. Because before you had the school kind of having these conflicts with the rest of the university, but now it's shifting to where you are having conflicts within the department itself. Some who saw CME and the department as just an educational facility, others who saw as an incubator to push these more radical musical ideas. And you touched upon him a few times already, but Kenneth Gaburo was one of the ones who really advocated for that radical experimentation within the school. And uh, could you kind of give us a little bit more background about him and exactly the role that he was filling in for this department?
1: Yeah, Gaburo Gaburo, more than anybody else in in this book, I find it difficult I find it difficult to talk about any of these people because they're all so complex. I mean, their personalities and their aesthetics and their achievements are so complex. It's really hard to talk about them. It's easier to write about them. But Gaburo is maybe my favorite to write about because he's probably the most difficult in the book, not only in terms of his personal dynamics, he seems to have been a really, people love Gaburo, but they he was an exhausting character, I would say. Probably he exhausted himself, I'm sure. Um, but his work is just incredibly difficult to grapple with. It's very radical, even now. Nothing really quite sounds like Kenneth Gaburo in the 70s. Um, but a brief thumbnail of, of Gaburo is that he came from New Jersey, and he... Uh, according to a good friend of his he was imbued with a lot of uh, kind of macho italian american new jersey culture in his younger days but he was a very sensitive artistic young man who liked to play piano and had a, evidently had a very fine technique on the piano and so he was const- he was at war just from sort of from day one with these different asp- aspects of his personality because he had a bit of that kind of aggressive machismo to him but also this the sensitivity to him. And so he went off to the war and I think the war scarred him in a lot of ways. In some ways it may have scarred him as much for the things he did as for the things he didn't do. You know, I think maybe there's that element with some people that they didn't, uh, you know, they didn't rise up to, to their ideas of what a man does in war or something. But when he came back, he ended up at the university of uh, uh, Illinois in Ch- Champaign-Urbana. He was there doing some really fantastic uh, early tape and electronic music. If anybody hasn't heard that stuff, it's well due for for, for re-examination. It's it's crazy and it's sort of primitive, but also very forward looking at the same time. It's on the face of it, incredibly serious. But once you dig into it, there's some real humor to it. Uh, really, really great stuff. And then he ended up coming out to, to San Diego, I think around 68, 67, making him one of the very earliest members of the music department. And he, he and Oliveros were really the the truly radical end of that music department because they were both, despite how different their music was, they really saw music as being more about more than sounds and about more than notes. They saw it as being a social and philosophical exercise as much as anything. And so Gaburo in the seventies really kind of goes off the rail in a lot of ways. He broke up his marriage. Um, in the process of doing all this and, and probably engaged in some behaviors that we, we would frown upon these days, but he, he began pursuing something called compositional linguistics, which. Basically is exploring the ideas of music as a language and the idea of language as a music and the center for music experiment was really important to that exploration. He, he uses these ensembles that he got together to conduct these long, long uh, exploratory sessions where they would develop these really obtuse, obscure, abstruse works. And he didn't exactly teach. He really, he created encounter groups in a lot of ways. There was a lot of, uh, you know, there's a book of his, uh, the name is escaping me right now, but it has a lot of his exercises and, and it touches on Oliveros territory where there's you know, exercises and touchy-feely, I think, is one where you're basically supposed to touch somebody's skin for a certain amount of time. And these are not your traditional ways of teaching music. Um, and so maybe maybe the purest example of what Gabro was doing in the 70s is something he actually started back in Urbana, but it's called Maladetto. And it's for seven narrators who don't really sing, they essentially narrate over one another, and they tell the history of the screw, the actual physical screw, the thing you would put into wood. But of course, screw has all these other connotations, uh, dirty and otherwise, that are sort of hinted at throughout the piece, and so it's 40 minutes of people cooing and whispering and yelling and screaming at each other about (laughs) about the screw, (laughs) and there's not a note of a musical instrument in it anywhere. And it's arguably not music at all, but it's it's a remarkable listen. And to to hear Gaburro talk about it or to read him talk about it is maybe even more remarkable. Um, so he was pursuing these kind of things. He was pursuing film. He had some really early kind of performance art things that he did on film that are sort of, again, sort of unrecognized, I think, if you read the books on performance art in the 70s is not mentioned so much, and I, and I think he should be, because it's not music per se. He's smuggling these ideas of performance and the body into a music department. Uh, the, the thing with Gaborro is he basically goes so far out on a limb that he's no longer really fitting in at UCSD at all. As it goes on, it becomes increasingly like a real school, and Gaburo is going com- com- increasingly left field. And so around 74, 75 or so he he blows up his marriage when he quits the university and decides to become a publisher and a freelance composer which you know is a, a hard endeavor anywhere but is a suicidal one in San Diego. So he he left behind his it's really a staggering thing. He left behind his he had a beautiful house up on in la jolla that's now worth i don't know maybe five million dollars or something like that he left behind his cushy job at ucsd where they underwrote these insane experiments that he would do and he left his wife and his child and he ended up moving to southeast san diego and living in a warehouse that was all painted black and just intensely tutoring people and intensely working on these projects and publishing lingua press which published, would publish a thousand copies of the most obscure stuff imaginable, including Gaburo's own writings and his own scores, and nothing was selling. And he just basically drove himself into the ground over the next few years. And in the end, he takes a job and around 1979, he took a job uh, working on a Harry Parch piece, oddly enough, in Berlin, the first major performance of a Parch piece in Europe. And it was quite a triumph but it was kind of the, the end of his San Diego days. Cause after that, he, he had to go back to, to academia and he went back to Iowa and kind of, kind of had to start all over again in a lot of ways. So he's this fas- fascinating story of idealism and egoism and uh, the, you know, the perils and pleasures of, of both, because even though I, like, it, it's difficult to make heads or tails of some of Gaburo's music, It's hard to look, it's hard to look away from it or to stop listening to it because it is so pure in its intentions and so different from anything else that I think you're likely to encounter that it's, it's hard not to, it's hard not to be drawn into them. So I hope people will go back and, uh, and give Gaburo a chance because he's, he's a really fascinating figure that more should be, more should be done on Gaburo, I think.
0: There's a New York Magazine article profile that you mentioned in your book that had a very interesting claim in which it said that California's musical adventurism is really due to its geographical distance from New York's hothouse atmosphere, where critical and commercial imperatives often result in creative stagnation. And I thought that claim was really interesting because by the late 70s, um, while UC San Diego was one of the most progressive schools in the country at that time, you write that it's generally radical days seem to be long gone. And I wanted to ask why.
1: UCSD was still very much, uh, the music department. Again, I'm speaking of here. I, I, I wouldn't be qualified to talk about the university as a whole. Arguably, I'm not qualified to talk about the music department either, but, um, <laughs> but it was still a very progressive institution, but the days when somebody like Gaburo or Oliveros was really thriving there, and when I say Gaburo and Oliveros, I'm also referring to the kind of people who were drawn to work with those people, uh, of which this book is full of many, many of those people, some well known now, some not so well known. Um, the days when they could have when they could disappear into the Center for Music Experiment and do a study of ESP or create Gaburros, uh my my my! What a wonderful fall! Which is, you know, twelve or fifteen minutes of people rolling around on mats while a narrator recites a scatological poem. Those days were 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 gone, and it's because the university was now a a, a real university. It was well funded. There was a uh, a world had sort of grown up around it, partially due to. The scientific nature of the campus. There were uh, technology and defense firms that eventually opened up around UCSD. And so uh, with with all the money and the expectations around UCSD, it, had, it had, had to grow up for better or for worse. And it became a more traditional school. And uh, school, uh, universities, at least that I know of, for the most part, tend not to be all that radical they you know, they're, they're designed, they have their purpose, they have their designs and uh, radicalism is not, not one of them. So that's what I'm talking about there. And the other thing is that increasingly in line with that is, and partially so this has to do with Roger Reynolds, uh, another remarkable composer we haven't talked about too much, but Reynolds had a, a much more structured idea of music that I would say was antithetical to the kind of stuff that Oliveros and uh, Gaburo and their and their lot were doing. Reynolds was a very radical composer in his own way or a, a very avant-garde composer maybe I should say, but he tended to work with with very specific systems and he was very interested in technology and he was increasing, increasingly guiding the, the department in those directions. And around 1979-1980 is when UCSD got its first real computer. They'd had microcomputers before. And I would say that that's something of a symbolic end to the early days of UCSD's music department and a symbolic end to the book, because with with that technology came an entirely different way of approaching music. And it became increasingly aligned with with the technology and less, I'd say, less philosophically, less, less philosophically concerned and less psychologically Complex. I forget the phrase Reynolds used to describe when he first came to San Diego in, in I think I forget sixty nine or something like that. I think he described his students as a comp- psychologically complicated bunch, and I would say by the by nineteen seventy nine, the department was designed to iron out those complications and to to work in a much more pragmatic sort of way. And again, somebody like Roger Reynolds, by by no means is he a conservative composer, but I'd say he's a composer with a capital C, whereas uh, Oliveros and Gaborro and those people were redefining what a composer could be. And yeah, so by that point, UCSD was just, it was no longer kind of a, a searching adolescent kind of, you know, radically turning from one thing to another and looking for alternatives. It was, it was a grown up with a job and its job was to be the university of California at San Diego. <laughs>
0: One really cool thing I liked about your book was that you have little mini essays and excerpts dedicated to recordings that a lot of these musicians did. And those are really fascinating in their own right. And I'm I'm sorry we didn't get to talk about any of those specific ones because there were some very interesting ones. But I I did want to, as my last question, for listeners who may be new to this type of music or otherwise unfamiliar, where do you recommend they start?
1: Well, you know, I've been talking... What I'd really like to do is put together some sort of compilation to go with this book because I know it's a lot of material for people <laughs> to go through and to try to make heads or tails of. Um but I would say, you know, maybe the easiest place to start is is Pauline Oliveros's 19 I believe it's 1981, maybe it's 82 album Accordion and Voice. And I say that because I think it's it's a distillation of everything that she learned. Or that she was working on in San Diego for all those years. She recorded it, I believe, in New York after she left San Diego, but it's all stuff that she was developing while while she was here. And it's a uh, it's it's just an accordion and voice. That's it for two sides, you know, two long pieces, and they're very just sort of they're very droning and very simple. But if you can let your mind go and subsume yourself into it, it's really a remarkable and beautiful and kind of transformative listen. Now that doesn't sound anything like a lot of the other things that were being produced, but that might be a a good gateway. After that, I would say, you know, if you're feeling really hardcore, then I'd say dig up, uh, there's a great Kenneth Gaburo compilation, which came out on, Hogus, I believe uh, I can't remember the name of that, but you could track it down. That's a good place to start. You know, Diamanda Galas was here. Her early her early albums are all San Diego stuff. And if you're into the more extreme end of things, that's that's another one. Um, oh, there's so many so many places to start. I don't know. I think Oliveros is the best, just because it really is. I think it uh, it, it 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 represents a lot of what these people were trying to do, which was trying to reorientate music away from the overly cerebral and the overly academic, overly technical approach that they felt had begun to dominate it and to bring it back to something more human. And there there are few things more human than listening to accordion and voice.
0: I agree. Absolutely. It's a beautiful record. Well, Bill, this was a fantastic book and um, really remarkable, really fascinating, and I really enjoyed my conversation with you, and I appreciate you joining me today.
1: Well, thank you, Bradley. I enjoyed it as well.
0: My name is Bradley Morgan, and you've been listening to New Books and Music with my guest today, Bill Perrine. His latest book is Alien Territory, Radical, Experimental, and Irrelevant Music in 1970s San Diego, and is published by Termite House.